Good morning. Good morning. Go ahead and make yourselves comfortable. And happy Memorial Day weekend. It feels like Memorial Day weekend. Some of you are here, and you are here because of family. Welcome to Knoxville. It's good to have you here. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here at Legacy Church. I'm the lead teaching pastor. Excited to be here on Memorial Day weekend. I'm excited to talk to you. Um, Typically, what we do before we start a sermon is we give a brief update or we draw attention to a part of Knoxville we call Central City, which is almost 20 square miles around downtown North. And today, I kind of wanted to talk about something that didn't necessarily only fit within those borders, but because of the national news is something that I guess we struggle with as a county, and that's human trafficking. So if you're from Knoxville, I'm sure you've probably seen this in the news. There was a sting um, where 32 individuals were caught in human trafficking. Either they were trying to solicit an underage person or they were part of the prostitution in and of of itself. So the TBI is the one that did this sting. TBI is like the FBI, but it's the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. And what was noteworthy, and I think what probably pushed it to the national level of media is the fact that two of the people were pastors. Two people caught in the sting were pastors. Um, One up in a church in Oak Ridge and one in a church here in Carnes. Grace Baptist Church, a very old, established, very large church. Um, A church that had 78 cameras there in its building and thorough background checks and deep relationships with the staff and with the leaders. And then the other church probably looks a little bit more like we do. They're about a year or two older than we are, um, and, and they're both very different denominations. They couldn't be really much more different than they already are as churches, and yet they both have a pastor that was caught in this sting. You know, as we pray for Knoxville this morning, I would love to pray and lead us as a church in praying for human trafficking victims here in Knoxville. I didn't realize how many there were. You know, this year has been a tough year for the city of Knoxville. We've been on the national news scene more than than normal, I would say, with the gang shootings and then this. And anytime something like that happens and kind of launches us to the top of CNN or USA Today, what it does is it kind of starts a flurry of activity in Knoxville. People want to get busy about doing things. They want to make sure it never happens again. And I do want to pray for that as a church as well, but I'd love to pray for the victims. There are a lot. There are a lot. The average age for someone caught up in human trafficking is 13.1 years of age, by the way. 100 in Tennessee alone per year. No, per month, forgive me, it's 1,200 per year. That's a lot of little kids. So we're going to pray for that. Then I'd love to pray for God's people. Because we have two churches this morning, they're going to have a lot less people in it because of this. Right? Two churches that people are not going to go back to. In fact, some of the people won't go to any church because they're going to be very upset about what they've seen or um, the, the, the anger deep inside of the crimes committed. And then I'd like to pray for the city, if we could. Because this is what they see. When they think of the church... This is the first thing that's going to come out of some of their mouths for the next several months is the fact that two pastors were caught in this. So I'm sorry to start off on such a heavy foot, but I do feel like it's important. I felt led by the Holy Spirit that we would pray for this specific thing today. Okay, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your goodness to us as a people. Lord, I thank you that, to my knowledge, no one in this church has ever suffered anything or been attached to a family that has suffered anything like human trafficking. 
But I know right now, this morning, there are victims of human trafficking within a 10-minute drive in any direction. And they're young. So Lord, I pray that you would break them out of that cycle, that you would rescue these kids out, that you rescue, even if they're not a kid, even if they're what we would call an adult, that you would rescue them out, that you would maneuver things in such a way that freedom would come to them, healing could begin. Lord, we pray for the two or three groups and boards here in in Knoxville that are kind of dedicated to this. But Lord, we know it's going to take much more than just a few pastors meeting together and talking about bringing awareness to this. I I, I do feel that something supernatural is going to have to happen to see a, a, a deep remedy to this problem in our county. So Lord, we just ask that you would give us wisdom on how we could be a part of something like that. And then, Father, I'd like to pray for Knoxville because there are so many people that are very far from Jesus that now when they look at the church, this is what they see. This is not what you died on the cross to create. This is not what the gospel put together. But this is what a lost world is going to see. Perverts, addicts. They're going to see people that are broken at the most core level, and they're going to think there is nothing for me there. In fact, it's probably worse there than where I'm at right now in my life. So, Lord, I pray that as the church, as part of the church of Knoxville, that we would do a fluent enough and beautiful enough job explaining, proclaiming, and displaying your gospel that people would see something different than two pastors caught up in a sting. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We thank you and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Again, thank you. Um, If you just walked in, my name is Luke and it's good to be here today. Turn in your Bible if you brought one with you to John 3. We've been just trucking through this series on the book of John. It's been a lot of fun. I've getting a lot of great feedback on it. And we're going to be in the third chapter today, John 3. You know, what's interesting to me is seemingly normal people have weird things that they are uncomfortable with, right? Have you ever bumped into somebody that they have this little thing that kind of sets them apart? They they find it to be weird. Like, I've got a friend in Texas that he cannot stand, and it makes his skin crawl to touch wood. Anything wooden, if he touches it, glances it with his hand, it just kind of makes his inside outs just crawl around. He, He can't deal with the feel of wood. I know another person who's in my extended family, basic words that you and I say every day, I mean, to the tune of seven or eight words that you will probably all say at least once or twice today, she cannot say. They cannot come out of her mouth because of the way, the uncomfortable, awkward, and abrasive feel that it has. I happen to have this with white foods. Not all white foods, but some white foods. If it's a creamy white food, I can't deal with it. I don't even really want to be in the same room, but if I smell it or see it, Man, it's really, really difficult. I'm uncomfortable with it, okay? White foods. But you know, as I was praying about this passage this week, one of the odd things, I think, that makes me feel uncomfortable is grace. That sounds weird, doesn't it? Grace. And when I say grace, what I mean, and some of you know this by now, it's God's goodness handed to you. It's God's beautiful, benevolent mercy and favor handed to you, even though you don't deserve it, even though you try to run away from it, even though you try to earn it. It's God's goodness gifted to you, totally despite you. 
And that makes me uncomfortable a lot of times. As much as I love Jesus, as much as I'm falling in love with the idea of grace, I still find myself walking around with a lot of grace repellent on. And I think one of the reasons that this is true we're not going to talk about today, and that's because we all like to earn it. So grace says you can't earn. Grace says you get despite you trying to earn it. But another reason that I feel like grace sometimes makes me feel uncomfortable is because it calls me out of dark. It calls my fallenness out for God to see, for me to own. Grace requires our brokenness, our failedness to come out into the open, and nobody wants to experience that. But grace can't be administered otherwise. It's the only way it functions. God's grace says to you and says to me, I have come to love you even though you have rocks in your hand that you've been throwing at me and that you'll probably keep throwing at me, you're a rock hurler, but I love you. And I can't get enough of you. And I'm going to pull you close, even though you push away. And I'm going to pull you close, even though you're going to keep throwing rocks and slashing and thrashing and rebelling. And even though you do all that, I love you. That's what grace does. And when grace found me as a young 20-year-old man, God found me with rocks in my hand, just like you. It's the nature of grace, finding us when we are not really behaving all of that well. In fact, we're incapable of behaving well. That's how grace arrives. That's why Paul says in Romans 5 that it is while we are still sinners that God shows his grace to us. Here it is. We give God hate. He gives us grace. That's the trade. How crazy is that? It doesn't even make sense. We hand God hate, we throw rocks, we scream, we bark at him, and he gives us love and mercy and passion. For you to enjoy grace, enjoy Jesus, and for you to enjoy grace, you have to own still that your heart wants to rebel. You've got to eat it, that you still want to throw rocks at God, that you want to fake it that you are still capable of vandalism because without this, without this owning it, without this understanding it and taking it in, there is no grace. There is no grace. Need for grace. The gospel is really only good news to those who are cracked and dislocated at the very core of who they are. And we don't want others to see our private dislocations and our private fractures, this is why grace is difficult for us. In fact, we'd rather just, rather just hide in the dark and just kind of stay there because the dark promises not to judge us. And the dark promises that we'll always be safe. The dark promises us that we'll never have to change, but we can always stay the same at all times. And this is where we find Nicodemus today in our discussion. If you weren't here last week, we started a discussion between Jesus a teacher, and Nicodemus, the elite teacher among elite teachers. And this little back and forth that they had, which was really helpful for us to see what it really means to be born again. But this is how Nicodemus came. He came enshrouded in darkness, discreetly, secretly, as if he had a little problem to be fixed. A little problem, he probably felt like all I need is just a really good teaching, and then I'll be fine. Probably brought a moleskin, some pens, probably highlight some stuff here and there, nod his head, stroke his chin. But his problem wasn't all that small, was it? It was a large problem. 
His soul was radically dislocated, and he needed a deep remedy. He needed radical grace. So what I'd love to do is just start in verse 12 and follow this along so that we could find ourselves where Nicodemus is, some of us, and some of us have the same problem that Nicodemus does, even though we are close to Jesus. It says this, and I'm setting up the passage because we taught this last week. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, Jesus says to Nicodemus, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Real quickly, what he's saying here, because this is confusing to a lot of people, all Jesus is saying is, I have authority to teach on this. I have full authority to teach on this, Nicodemus, not because I went up to heaven and got a message and came back down, because that's what the Jews back then would see is a very credible message. Moses goes up a mountain, gets a message, comes down, we listen to what he says. A prophet swears that God brought him up, gives him a message, he comes back down, we listen to what he says. Jesus is saying, it's not because I ascended to heaven and came back down that I have authority. It's because I used to live there. And I got this firsthand. And what I'm telling you is, is you cannot enter the new kingdom with a new king, with new blood in your veins. You can't be a part of that unless you're born again. And that doesn't happen unless the Holy Spirit washes over you, purifies you according to God's will, according to God's directive. But the chief skepticism that Nicodemus has, and it's where we're going to pick it up today, is how does this happen? I mean, think about that. How? How? How does God reborn us? How does he change us like that? How how, how can you see behind the curtain or under the hood? How, How can you see the mechanics behind that? So he gives them the answer right here. In verse 14 in the third chapter, this is what the, Lord or the, word, or the word of the Lord will say to us today that I think will show us Jesus much more clearly. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should perish, or should not perish, but have eternal life. These three verses... 14 through 16, both Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, and Martin Luther, the, the, the tip of the Reformation, both these men call this the gospel in miniature. In fact, Spurgeon would even say in one of his teaching lessons to, to other teachers that he, he, he wasn't really always excited about preaching this because it was so complex. He had a little bit of fear of mishandling it, and surely it can get its own month or two or three. It is a complex passage. It's pregnant with very deep meaning in every word. But our gospel has been gathered from this passage and brought to pop culture, and something odd has happened. I mean, John 3.16, right? John 3.16. Every sporting event in the world has some guy with a shirt or a cardboard sign or something that says John 3.16. The very, very first time I ever saw it was watching Dallas Cowboy games with my dad. He was an avid fan. That's how I learned football, was watching it on TV with him, watching them march up and down the field, enjoying that. And then one day I saw this guy. Can you put the rainbow guy up there? There he is. I saw the skinny white guy up in the stands with a rainbow wig on, and it said John 3.16 on his shirt. And I didn't know what that was. So as a kid, I'm thinking, what is that? He must have a friend whose name is John. Like in section three, seat 16, and he's just saying to everybody, hey, John, I'm here. 
But why would he do that? Why wouldn't he just go to section three, seat 16, and just say hi to John? Why would he go through all the trouble to print up a shirt? I was so confused. Dad, what is that shirt? What does that mean? He said, it's in the Bible. What, what, what does it say? I don't know. Look it up. So I looked it up, and I couldn't really tell you at that time what it meant. I just knew it's the Bible. He really wants people to see this. And on and on and on time goes until, go ahead and put our, our Tim Tebow up here. He eye blacks verses all the time, but that was his most famous eye black, John 3.16. And whenever there would be a Florida game, that would pop up in Google searches, John 3.16, because they would see it on his eye black. Little do people know, this is what's interesting about that passage, as much as pop culture can almost recite it to you, interesting that it's connected to a passage that compares Jesus, Jesus on a cross, to a snake on a pole. There is a congruent thought here and a picture being drawn that compares, to a certain extent, Jesus with a serpent. What? Why? Why? It goes back to a passage in Numbers. It's an incredible passage. Some of you know this, but we're going to put it up on the screen. Don't worry about turning there. It's in the 21st chapter of Numbers, and I'm going to start in verse 4. This is about the, the nation of Israel, and it says, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, this, this is the instruction of the Lord to take care of this problem, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Well, that's peculiar. Between you and me, this is one of the more creepy passages in the Bible because I want you to imagine millions of snakes slithering around everybody and everyone's getting bit. Your friend got bit. Your kids are getting bit. Your mama got bit. You reach for something, you get bit. There's snakes everywhere and they're all vipers. This is crazy. If you've ever been out to Haw Ridge to run or to bike, nothing but snakes. Don't ever go there. Nothing but snakes. Every time I go there, if I run this way, there can be snakes in the, in the trail just waiting for me. They don't have arms, but if they did, this is what they do. <laughs> I would turn around and go back, and there would be more snakes. Snakes coming out of the trees, snakes coming out of the water. There's snakes everywhere. And by the time I'm done with that run or that workout or whatever, my heart rate is so high and my skin is crawling because of the snakes. And this was their reality. People are dropping dead. People are dropping dead. Jesus, brilliantly, is leading Nicodemus to this very well-known passage where people who are bit can look with a gaze of faith upon a pole with a serpent on it and have that venom removed from their blood system and live to see another day. How cool is that? This ability to live to another day, by the way, this is grace to them because they didn't deserve it. 
They were murmurers, rebels, vandals. They didn't deserve it. They deserved no pole, no bronze serpent. The fact that they had anything to look at with faith was grace to them. But it required that they admit first that they were even bit. Sounds basic, but think about it. If you ignore that you've been bit, you die. No remedy. If you would, if you would just forget the fact and blow off the fact that that pole was going to help you, you die. No remedy. It takes trust in what God has put forth as a saving plan. So what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus here is, hey, soon, Nicodemus, I will be lifted up. I will be lifted up. And all those who gaze upon me with faith will have the venom of death removed from their blood, and they too will live to see another day. It doesn't answer our question, though, why a serpent? I mean, didn't God say back in Genesis that that would be one of the most cursed forms of creation? Cursed are you above all livestock. And we know that. In fact, we, we probably all agree it's the icon of evil in, in, in all the created order is a snake. You can't get much more cursed than a snake. And that's true. Consider what Paul says in the book of Galatians as he's speaking to a young church. In verse 13, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. And then we, a lot of us know the, the, the second Corinthians passage that says, even though Jesus knew no sin, he became sin. We see in Isaiah, real quickly, he was despised, he was rejected by men. You see, when Jesus was lifted up on a pole, not bronze, but on a wooden one, he would be lifted up as our cursed substitute, holding all of our sin, holding all of our failedness, all of our dislocations, all of our fractures, all of our failures, not cursed for his life lived, but cursed for our life lived. Just as God's grace came to those who looked upon a, bra a bronze pole, God's grace comes to us who look upon a wooden cross. Just as God would bring a physical healing to a nation who looked at a cursed serpent upon a pole, God's grace would bring a spiritual healing to us who would look at a cursed savior upon a pole. That's why this story is in the Bible. This crazy story about snakes in numbers. It was pointing to Jesus, and then now Jesus is pointing back to it, to teach the how. This is how you are reborn. This is how you are born again. You know, it's always interesting to me, not really a great teaching point that goes with this, but the image of a pole with a snake on it is commonly known as the rod of Asclepius, which is a Greek term pulled out of Greek mythology, but it's just one of those places where Greek mythology has plagiarized something that came out of Christianity. You see that insignia in some very interesting places. Go ahead and put one of them up there. That's the EMT sign. I just saw one the other day on the side of a, of a van. There it is. That's the rod of Asclepius, a bronze pole with a bronze serpent. Go to the next one. That is the logo for the AMA. <laughs> Same thing. And then go to the last one. World Health Organization. They all use the same thing. Interesting, huh? How they use that sign, that signia, to point to health. To point to a time, to point to a time that would point to the gospel. They're pointing to a time where people were made well, brought whole by looking with faith. 
But the whole reason that's even in the Bible is to point to a time where we are all made whole and healthy, even spiritually alive. You know, I think it's fitting that it does this, that all healing in our bodies points to an ultimate healing overall. And that's a totally different sermon. I'd love to preach it. You know, eventually that snake on the pole in the story was destroyed by King Hezekiah. You can get that in 2 Kings. I think it's in chapter 17 or 18. But King Hezekiah orders that this, this rod with the bronze serpent on it be destroyed because so many people were treating it like it was magic, right? Like it had some sparkly power to it, and so they would worship that thing. You know, We kind of do the same thing today, don't we? Bibles, crosses. It, that's another sermon altogether as well. But if I were to come back to this sermon, this placing of Jesus on a wooden pole before a bitten mankind is a substitute for us, and that is the proof of God's love for mankind. You really have to get this. We miss this so often, I think, because we use the word love so much, and the word love is in the Bible over 750 times. It's not an uncommonly used word. So it's become empty freight of sorts, but he says he loved the world so much that he invested his deepest treasure. Never before in the history of histories, never, ever, 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 ever has a love been seen like this ever, ever. This never happens. Jesus is going to paint the picture for him. I love how Spurgeon says it. He says, judge you fathers how you love your own sons. Could you give them to die for your enemy? I'm a dad. I have kids. Sure, we'd love it and be fine, I guess, if our kids went off to some overseas place, some dangerous place. Maybe they're in the military, right? I mean, we're celebrating that this weekend with Memorial Day, people who have given their lives in the duty that they have taken on themselves to protect the country. Or maybe our kids go overseas and they dig wells for the impoverished. Maybe they die for a noble cause. Maybe we're okay with that. But what if you sent your kids over for the express reason of being humiliated, shamed, stripped, left alone, and butchered on a cross at the hands of the people that your child went to go serve? Could you do that? Could you do that? Could I do that? Would this be too much? You see, this act of love, for God so loved the world, it's not because the world is so big, it's because the world is so bad. That's why he says that. God has invested the most significant and valuable treasure he could, and it was to rock hurlers, rebels. Rock hurlers, we should be condemned. We don't deserve the bronze pole with the bronze snake either. We, we should get what we should get. But Jesus goes on to say that we get grace instead. We get grace instead. That's why he continues on in the 17th verse. We'll keep reading in this passage. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Okay, this confuses some people. 
Let me just do this real fast with you. The primary thing you need to carry from this little passage right here, the primary thing for you to know is that everybody begins condemned. Okay, everybody begins condemned. No one is neutral. No one is good. We hate that in society. I get it. This is the biblical truth. When you look at Romans 3, it'll be up on the screen. Romans 3, Paul is quoting King David. And it says this, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. I mean, he says no over and over again, almost like a parent talking to a kid, almost like someone talking to another person who's trying to interrupt. No, nobody. What about this one, David, Paul? What about this? I mean, it's just a kid eating an ice cream cone. Nobody. What about this one? I mean, look how he's serving his sister. How sweet is that? Nobody. No one. No one. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You see, Jesus did not die on the cross to make neutral people pro-Jesus, but to make hardened villains lovers of God. That's what happens. Now, this is tough for the world in general to accept today. It is. Culture in general, mankind in general, views humans as neutral, if not good, to be honest with you. Neutral. Which means that if God sent Jesus to mankind to rescue mankind, well, that's admirable. Maybe even a little bit interesting. Maybe even applause-worthy. Right? But we could take it or leave it because we're pretty good. And if we're pretty good or neutral, and now I'm being judged because I don't accept Jesus, well, then that's just not fair. And that's how the cycle goes. But man is not good or neutral, but bad. He already stands condemned, already bitten by a fiery serpent, already awaiting death. Without Jesus removing a curse from us, it remains. It remains on us. Let me explain how this works. If you were to just look down a, a few sentences later, I guess, in, in that John passage in verse 36, we see almost a repeat of the same theme. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God, what, remains on him, meaning that it was already there, preexisted, the, the wrath of God. You see, Jesus did not come to judge. That is the role. He came to rescue. He did not come to judge. Yet, if we can all be honest for a moment, if you're a student of the Bible, it seems to me like every time Jesus opens his mouth, it divides. Does it not? Some people get closer, some people get further. It divides. Some get saved, some blow it off. It feels to me like judgment just kind of comes in the wings with him. Did you know the same thing happens to you and me today when we express, proclaim, or display the gospel to a broken city? Some will come, some will go. The gospel message, however, make no mistake, is a divisive message. It brings condemnation, even though that's not the role that we intended to bring. That's what he's saying right here. You know, 2 Corinthians has been helpful for me in this little part of God's doctrine. Paul says in the second chapter, he says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And this is a very cool verse. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. That's mission. That's mission to this city. Mission to the people around you. Through us, a fragrance of the knowledge of him is spread everywhere. Have you ever smelled something that somebody else hated but you loved? Right? We have these essential oil diffusers in our house. 
like one downstairs, one upstairs, because me and the boy will have the house smelling like a locker room in about 1.2 days. If we don't have something airing it out, making it smell like a normal place, we just stink up the house, right? Well, the one in our room has got some oil in there. I don't know what it is. My wife loves the way it smells, though. It refreshes her. It makes her feel clear, energetic. It makes the room feel like she has reclaimed it, you know, and it doesn't smell like a dude's room, but it, but it, it smells good. So when I walk into that room and that oil is there, I, I've got to be honest, it's not her, it's me. Something's messed up in my head or my nose. It smells like foot. <laughs> foot. And not good foot, but like foot gone sideways, you know? Foot wrong. It smells like foot. And so when I walk in, I'm just, oh, I'm just going to breathe through my mouth the whole time I'm in here because I can't deal with that smell. This is what the gospel does. He says, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Same message, though. Same message. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? It's like these lights. We have lights all over the stage, you know? The purpose of the lights are to cast a light, to light something up. But in doing so, they throw a shadow, don't they? They throw shade at the same time. But that's not the purpose. We don't buy the lights and plug them in so that they throw shade everywhere. We do it so that it illuminates and throws light. But it just comes with the package. It comes with the package. When we extend God's gracious message to a hurting place and a hurting people, some will look at the king on a cross and they will trust. Some will look and they will say, I'm either not bitten or that's not the remedy, and they will move on. The gospel is divisive. In concluding his conversation with Nicodemus, as he's pulling it down to an end, Jesus says something that's very intriguing that I've been really anxious to get to. He says this in verse 19. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Okay, light just means Jesus here. You can go back to John 1 and it kind of decodes it for you a little bit, but light is just Jesus when Jesus shows up on the scene and light floods everything, people want to scatter back into the darkness because that light starts to encroach on their comfortable darkness. The darkness that does not judge them. The darkness that does not ask them to change. The darkness that lets them just keep doing what they want to do. The light says no to that. And so not only do they love the darkness, they hate the light. That's what he's telling Nicodemus right here. I think people know this, too. People that are far from Jesus, I think they know this. I knew it. I didn't know anything back then. I couldn't even set the memory on my car stereo. I couldn't do any. I didn't know anything, and I knew this. I knew that if I were to take one step closer to Jesus, he was going to expose and interpret me deeply. He was going to read me openly. I was going to be exposed. The light was going to shine on things that I had originally hidden. He was going to want to cure it. He was going to want to be graceful, but that grace made me uncomfortable. I don't think I'm alone. Grace calling me out of this cave of darkness, being awesome and yet uncomfortable at the same time. You see, as Christians, 
people who love Jesus, we are beyond hating the light, but we're not really beyond hating the light, are we? I mean, not really. I think we too find it to be very abrasive and very uncomfortable to be interpreted openly, clearly seen, exposed by Jesus. It's these passages that I feel like are the most transforming ones that we have in the Bible, I think, because I don't feel like we know ourselves well enough. We don't know how things work inside us well enough. Our very own inner being, but being freed from the dark, we still prefer the dark. But Jesus here is laying bare the inner workings of unbelief and the very reason why we scramble away from grace and back towards the darkness, which doesn't even make any sense. God changes us. He reborns us births us into a new life. Yet like roaches, when the lights go on, under the fridge we go. It's comfortable. I can stay there. I don't have to be exposed. And I know I won't be judged. Let me show you a couple of the ways that we do this before we end this. One is that I feel like we isolate each other, or we isolate ourselves. Let me just say it that way. This is a way I feel like the church is really good at clinging to the dark, and pushing away from the light. I think isolation makes that happen. Have you ever noticed that the closer you get with somebody, now hear me, the more they know you, it's a mathematical certainty, the closer you get to somebody, the more they know you, because your hair can't stay up forever. The makeup can't always be on. Sure, you're meeting someone today for the first time, you get their first name, you may remember it next week, Everyone's got smiles on, cologne, deodorant. Everyone looks good. Spend five hours, ten hours a day with that person every day for just the next week. You will see something. They'll flip off the car next to them. They'll fart when no one, you know what, something will happen, and you'll be like, wait, I know you a little bit more deeply. The more you let someone get close to you, the more they can see you closely. And this takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of vulnerability. In fact, the best relationships that you will have, the best relationships you will ever have are the ones that are surrounding you with courageous people that you have given permission to speak to some things in your life where they are calling you out of some dark places. Dark places. Those are the best relationships. People that you've given this permission to intrude you see, Jesus' community points to Jesus. We either do it by the things we say to you, or you say to me, or we do it by the way we live. But our lives should always point to Jesus. But the dark promises not to point to anything. I think when people totally disappear from community, church, whatever, I think many times it's because they don't want people meddling with what's going on, they're in the dark. They like it. To come out of that means to be exposed and interpreted by another. To have some things called out that are uncomfortable. It's easier just not to be there. The author of Hebrews says it this way in the 10th chapter. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, I would say is still a habit today, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. To have it today, reclusing, finding some dark corner and staying there. 
Listen, the win, by the way, if we were to apply this, the win is not getting in a community group. The win is not even scaling it down and getting in a DNA group. You could do both those things and fail and stay isolated. The win starts at finding a very courageous person and inviting them and giving them permission to speak very hard things to you. Hey, I know you see some things in my life. I I struggle with these things. This is what it looks like when I start coming off the tracks. But I know you probably see more, and I'm inviting you into my life to help me. To help me. That's the start. That's not even the win. That's not even the win. Because whenever they do bring something to you, the win is you owning it and not freaking out, not disappearing, not seeing caller ID pop up with their name and ignoring it because you're in a bad place and that dark feels so much more comfortable. And the very fact that you see their name come up on the phone brings a struggle. We all have our various caves, but the gospel has freed us from that kind of isolation. Another way we do it is dishonesty. I'm not really talking about being dishonest with each other, but personally dishonest. Being personally dishonest. Have you ever noticed that it's easy to ignore tough questions and tough passages? Because if you just ignore them for just a few minutes, before you know it, you're moving on with the rest of your day, and you're distracted, and you don't have to go back to those moments. It's easy to be distracted. It's easy to be dishonest with ourselves and say, I really need some work there. I really want to think about that more, pray about that more, meditate on that more, read on that more. There's this interesting conversation Jesus has with the Pharisees, right, where he says, hey, you guys, gosh, you do all the small things, but the big weighty measures, you blow those off. You should be doing all of it. But the weighty things you drop, and then you go off and you're obedient and easy things. Good luck with that. I think he's talking to me. I can do that. You can do that. We can find easy little moments to honor God and high-five ourselves that we're doing such a great job of following the Lord so deeply when we're trucking right past the deep sin and perversion and weirdness and addictions and fears and hurts and unforgiveness. It's just rattling around. We won't even approach it because we're being personally dishonest with ourselves. This is why you find it in some people. You'll notice this in some people that on the outside, they look very put together. They look like they're in touch with themselves. Like there shouldn't be a problem until you see them on the news the next day, getting picked up in a sting for something very different than what you thought their life amounted to. People being personally dishonest. You know, by the way, And that Grace Baptist, before some of you are really, I've heard some very hard things even online against that church. Be be careful. Be careful. Right? It's easy for us to look at that and start putting our hands on our waist and looking down and saying, can't believe that. Can't believe that. Never happened to me. I would never do that. Come on. Come on now. We want to be careful. This is what Paul says in Galatians 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. I caught this coming out of my mouth the other day. I was seeing a story on how some bigots were doing something. Some racists were were, uh, saying things. I think they spray painted something on a college building. And I went, I hate bigots. 
I hate bigots. I just hit the same foul ball they hit. They hate whites or Asians or blacks, and I hate them. It's amazing how I can feel so obedient in some things and blow right past some very, very deep currents that need some time spent on them. We can be personally dishonest and stay in the dark. It's super easy to do this. Where has Jesus been poking you? What has he been approaching and touching and then bringing back? It's the thing that you keep saying, it's not that big of a deal. It's, it's not high def con alert. I don't need to bring anyone else into it. I don't even really need to think about it that soon. It's not that big of a deal. What is that thing? The deep thing where you might be in the dark, even though everyone else looks and they see you out in the light, but you know better. And I think the last one, which is a quick one, is just busyness. I think we can avoid Jesus and stay in the dark just by simply being busy. It's easy today, isn't it, just to be busy? I think it's easier today than it's ever been to be busy, to be still and to be contemplative of what Jesus is doing in our life. The Puritans used to call this internal stillness. The Puritans would speak about how it is like having a big basin of water that you just set on a table, and of course it kind of rocks a little bit and the ripples go everywhere, but waiting until the water gets still, still enough to where it's not moving and you can see a reflection. A lot of us, we just grab it and we try to make it still, and we just kind of keep recycling the, the waves. But to find an internal stillness takes time. Time of not being busy, not being accessible, not being distracted, just not. The silent consideration of what Jesus is saying to your deeper, innermost being. This helps us be a little bit more in touch with who we are when we are out of the dark and close to Jesus in the light of where we see his truth and his gospel shining on us. Listen, it's easy to become estranged with yourself, not really knowing what makes you tick. Being busy for a few years will do that. And if you're estranged with yourself, you will be estranged with the people around you. You cannot be close to people around you if you don't even know what makes you tick. That's why for some of you, relationships are so difficult. It's not the other person, it's you. It's you. Just try sitting quiet for five minutes. Not right now, but that'd freak you out if we did that, wouldn't it? <laughs> Later on, try it. Five to ten minutes, just sit there quiet. Watch how fast your flesh will revolt at the deafening silence of solitude and meditating on what God is speaking to you. It takes practice. You know, Jesus being a light to our lives is uncomfortable. Grace is uncomfortable. Grace feels uncomfortable. For us to enjoy Jesus, for us to enjoy his grace, we have to get used to seeing our stuff, being interpreted, being clearly seen, being open, being exposed to Jesus. And this does mean coming out of the dark. It means coming out of hiding, coming out of isolation, coming out of busyness, coming out of dishonesty, and letting Jesus heal us. Brennan Manning, who is a priest 
I think he's still alive. I'm not sure. He said, the imposter must be called out of hiding, accepted and embraced. He's an integral part of my total self. Whatever is denied cannot be healed. Whatever is denied cannot be healed. Healing only comes whenever someone says, I have an injury. I have a problem. I've got a fracture or a dislocation. There's a need. I have it. And yes, physician, you can touch it. You can handle it. Have you ever seen someone that's broken their arm or their leg? Kid all the way up to adult. They hug it tight. They, don't, they, they know it's broken, and they know someone's going to have to touch it, but they don't want anyone to touch it. And that's how we are. We either say, this is not really a break. I'm not really dislocated. I don't really have a problem. I'm neutral. I'm good. I don't need it. All the time, bit by a snake, set to die. Curse remaining on us. Or... We're bit, and we know something's wrong, but we say, Jesus is not the remedy. That's not the pole I'm looking at. I've got other things I'm looking at. The only people that see healing are the ones that say, I am injured and have a need. I'm in trouble, and I need a remedy. And the physician can touch. The physician can heal. Go ahead and stand with me. I want to pray for you guys. I do think there's two groups of people. I think some of us believe that nothing is wrong. That's what Nicodemus felt, by the way. That's what the Pharisees always felt. Nothing is wrong. Everything is fine, right according to schedule. Continuing to be unknown, continuing to be uninterpreted, very busy and dishonest with yourself personally. Some of you, that's a point of repentance for you today, to turn away from that, to turn away from that, run to the light, run to Christ, who meets all those needs you're desperately grasping in the dark to have met. And then some of us, we know something is wrong, but we think Jesus is wrong too. You feel like the darkness is liberating to you because it won't challenge you. And it's not judging you. But let me tell you, as uncomfortable as grace might be, grace is the most beautiful, intoxicating thing. It's goodness gifted to you, and you can't ruin it. You can't fumble it enough. It's grace. It's his love dispensed towards you when you deserve the exact opposite. Yes, it's uncomfortable, but it's intoxicating at the same time. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for your goodness to us. You are good. Lord, you are good. You are gentle. You are sweet. You are so thoughtful. And you are so considerate, Lord. That all we need is a gaze of faith towards a wooden cross lifted with a cursed king on it, a substitute for me. Lord, you did that for us. That's a grace to us. Lord, I know, I know that I know, that I know with every fiber in my being, there are people here today struggling, living in the dark, staying in the dark, whether they are far from you, Lord, or close to you. We are all guilty of running to the dark for our answers, for our comfort, for our peace, for our secrecy. Hating the light. But Jesus, you come and you say, I am the light. And you are beckoning us from our caves. And I can't speak to what all of those caves are for the people in here, but I know that you are calling people out of secrecy, calling them out of just being oblivious, out of not approaching the deeper struggles in their life. 
Lord, let today be a day that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you change hearts. That as we repent as a people, as we take communion, as we sing, as we give, as we do all the things we do to respond to you, one of the ways we respond to you is just to say, here I am, no more darkness. By your grace, God, I stay close to you, openly interpreted, exposed. Do with me as you will as the great physician. Lord, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.